You have put a new song in my mouth. A song of praise. A sound that resonates that all of heaven and earth may worship you. We tread the hills to meet with you, to see your majesty in all that surrounds us. For it speaks and displays the eternal God of ages, creator, author, victor. In love, you established an everlasting covenant with your people, and it's your love that captivates us. As children of the King, we rush in as waves unrestrained, overcome, overwhelmed, that the King crowned in glory and splendor would reach down to place a crown upon our heads. So we raise our banner, the banner we boldly stand under, the banner of Jesus Christ. From dusk to dawn, from age to age, your praise resounds in all the earth. Deliverer, Redeemer, ruler of an everlasting kingdom that cannot be shaken. We trust in the name of Christ Jesus, the only King forever. Welcome to Zion's Redemption Radio. This is Fundamentally Mormon. I'm your host, Mark Lichtenwalter. The guest call-in number is 917-889-8827. That's 917-889-8827. You can find this at blogtalkradio.com forward slash fundamentally Mormon. And the text will also be posted on my Facebook wall at facebook.com forward slash L-A-Z-U-R-U-S 1977. You can also find the text and the audio to this radio program on iTunes at Fundamentally Mormon and in the different Facebook groups that I am an admin of. Some of those groups are LDS Last Days Prophecy and Gospel Discussions, LDS Gospel Mysteries, Latter-day Unity, and others. You can find the pages that I admin also on my Facebook wall. And if you enjoy this program, please friend request me or follow me and uh, make me one of your close friends. We try to put out as many episodes as we can during the week. But I'm thankful for you to be here today. Let's get right into the reading today. We are going to be reading out of Ogden Kraut's books. You can find his books for free to read online at ogdenkraut.com. That's O-G-D-E-N-K-R-A-U-T.com. That's O-G-D-E-N-K-R-A-U-T.com. Welcome to the program. Uh, We are going to be reading Chapter 16 of United Order, Latter-day Sinners. We'll be on pages 233 to 251. You can read this at ogdenkraut.com. Just click on Read Ogden's Books and then scroll down to United Order. 
We'll be starting on page 233. The earth also is defiled under the inhabitants thereof, because they have transgressed the laws, changed the ordinances, and broken the everlasting covenant. Therefore hath the curse devoured the earth, and they that dwell therein are desolate. Therefore the inhabitants of the earth are burned, and few men left. Isaiah chapter 24, verses 5 and 6. Note, Joseph Fielding Smith declared that it is the Latter-day Saints who have transgressed the laws, changed the ordinances, and broken the everlasting covenant. Deseret News Church Section, October 17, 1936. Two principal signs are related to wealth, the love of money, which is in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10, and the inequality of riches, which is spoken about in Doctrine and Covenants section 49, verse 20, uh, 20. For the past 150 years, 190 years now, the saints have been guilty of both evils, and the question now arises, what happened to cause this failure? Orson Pratt contended that the saints were guilty of these sins over a century ago when he said, anything short of a perfect e- equality in temporal things is, is sin. Hence the Lord says, it is not given for one man to possess that which is above another, wherefore the whole world lieth in sin. Is this law now enforced upon the saints? Do they have all things in common, on page two thirty four five percent, do they possess all? Do they all possess the same? No, they do not. They have not become righteous enough to obey this law. Covetousness has taken such deep root in their hearts, through the wicked traditions of their Gentile fathers, that this law remains unheeded. And quote, The Seer, by Orson Pratt, page 291. But there is greater danger in turning away from God's laws than not having them at all. The last verse from the recorded section 136 of the Doctrine and Covenants reads like a special warning to the saints. Quote, Be diligent in keeping all my commandments lest judgments come upon you and your faith fail you and your enemies triumph over you. Inequality is a sin, not only to the Latter-day Saints, but also to the world. And Brigham Young said, the Latter-day Saints will never accomplish their mission until this inequality shall cease on the earth. Journal of Discourses, Volume 19, page 47. It is a sad commentary to realize that the saints have not been able to divert the Gentiles from the inequality of their money, but rather the Gentiles have been able to divert the Mormons from the inequality of theirs. There is nothing wrong with riches, as Orson Pratt explained, quote, Riches are not a curse, but they are a great blessing. It is inequality in riches that is a great curse. God has made all the riches of the earth and the riches of all worlds. He made the gold and the silver and the precious metals. He formed the flocks and the herds and all useful animals. 
he has made the earth exceedingly rich, and he has given man dominion over all things. The more this people enjoy these things, in the, the better he is pleased. We're on page 235 at 10%. It is impossible for his people to become too rich. If the whole world, with all the, measure, or all the treasures thereof, were in the hands of the saints, the Lord would still be delighted for them to have more. But these blessings have become a great curse to man, because they have been unequally possessed. We again repeat the word of the Lord to the church, to this church, when it is said, quote, It is not given for one man to possess that which is above another, wherefore the whole world lieth in sin. Unequal possession of that which God has made for the benefit of all his children is sin. All nations, kindreds, and people are in sin because of this inequality. The saints are still in sin so far as they approve this unequal possession. And we far shall remain in sin until we make exertions or an exertion to put this inequality away from us. We must be one, not only one in heavenly riches, but one in earthly riches. And quote the seer by Orson Pratt, page 293 and 294. Pratt added a prophecy regarding this inequality of wealth among the saints when he said, But I will prophesy concerning this church and the people that all who will not come into that order of things when God, by his servants, counsels them to do, will cease growing in the knowledge of God. They will cease having the Spirit of the Lord rest upon them, and they will gradually grow darker and darker in their minds until they lose the Spirit and power of God. Page 236 at 16%. And their names will not be numbered with the names of the righteous. You may put that down and record it. Journal of Discourses, Volume 15, page 357. Over 100 years ago, Heber C. Kimball rebuked the elders because they were greedy after the things of this world. Times have not changed. It will be more difficult to persuade the elders to live the united order today than ever before. It will take a severe catastrophe to bring them to their knees, humbling them enough to be obedient to this law of God. Brigham Young could foresee the time when these worldly temptations would, would greatly increase among this people, and he commented that, quote, Men have said probably to all of you who have been out and mingling with this world, it is very well for you Latter-day Saints to talk about your condition now, because you are a primitive people. You are a young community. You have not been tempted and tried. Wait till you increase in wealth and until you become familiar with the sins which surround the wealthy. Wait until you are brought in contact with luxury. 
Wait until the spirit of reform, which animates your which animates your pioneers, dies out, and a generation rises up who will think more of the world, then there will be a different feeling in the sp- feeling and spirit, and you will not be persecuted, hated, or despised. You will become more popular because the world will become familiarized with your ideals or ideas. Then Mormonism and the Latter-day Saints will become like every other people who have preceded them. We're on page 237 at 21%. That have preceded them, overcome by the luxuries of the world and by the love of riches. And quote, Journal of Discourses, volume uh, 15, page 207. Brigham concluded by saying that the saints could avoid these evils only by obedience to the order of Enoch, when there shall be no rich and no poor among the Latter-day Saints. By the time John Taylor became president of the church, it was getting, it was getting into a worse condition than before. President uh, Taylor reflected, quote, how many years is it since this United Order was started, and how little we have done? I tell you, if we go a little further in our drawing off, and each taking his own course, God will leave us to ourselves. Journal of Discourses, Volume 21, page 60. Brigham Young had acknowledged this too and described what would happen to the saints if they rejected these laws when he said, If the Latter-day Saints, to whom the Lord has revealed the light and truth of the gospel, were to prove unfaithful and rebel against God, they would be cursed below any people on this earth, below even these miserable Lamanites that are wandering around our settlements. Journal of Discourses, Volume 11, page 248. The saints have always claimed that their religion is the principal factor in their lives and their great love for God, but claiming something and possessing it are two different things. Brigham Young also commented, we're on page 238 at 25%. Brigham Young also commented, the Lord would be glad to see the people practice out of doors what they hypocritically profess before him indoors. And I'm, he's talking about the temple. You go into the temple, you make your covenants to live love, consecration, but there's no united orders, which is how you live the love, consecration. You know, and like part of Brigham Young's endowment, uh, which has been changed by the church, uh, and some of you remember this, the devil comes out and there's a teaching principle. He says, every one of you have made covenants this day and you don't keep those covenants, you'll be in my power. So, But we don't ever keep the law of consecration, which foundation is the united order or vice versa, whatever. But there's 16 million, million members of the church and we don't do it. And we can't unless the organization does it, or we as a people do it on our own, but then if we as a people do it on our own, 
well, you can be excommunicated from the church for, for doing that. You know, and it's basically the same test. God has given us instructions. Are we going to be obedient to God? Or are we going to ignore God because a man who proclaims to be a prophet, seer, and revelator tells us not to worry about it? But even that, they don't even tell us not to worry about it anymore. They just don't even talk about it hardly. But we know in Genesis chapter 9 of the Joseph Smith-inspired translation of the Bible, it says that when a people live all that God has commanded, then Zion will be redeemed. Then they shall look up, and Zion will come down from above, and the church of the firstborn will come down out of heaven. Now, in order for Adam and Andiamon to happen, the church of the firstborn has to come down out of heaven. Zion has to be redeemed, but that won't happen until there is a people who will be obedient to what God has commanded and stop trusting after the flesh, which is what you do actually when you trust the prophet to lead you all the time and actually trust God and be obedient to what God has asked us to do. And we have more than enough information to start United Orders, but we don't. And also, real quick, I have been uh, invited to uh, different United Orders by the fundamentalists, and they want to show me their things, especially over there at Mount Pleasant. They they tried to, uh, a number of years ago, there was a man by the name of Jack Christensen. I think, I think that's what his name was. I might be wrong. But anyway, um, I met him in Price. He was uh, selling something, I can't remember, it had something to do with cell phones, and he was at Price, at the Walmart in Price, and I got to talking to him, and he was impressed by my level of knowledge, and uh, he wanted me to to come to where he lived, in Mount Pleasant, and uh, go to their church meetings at the AUB, which is, uh, I think, the second biggest fundamentalist church in the world, actually, for Mormon fundamentalism. I think it's the FLDS and the AUB are probably the two largest. Anyway, so um, so I go over there, and he shows me around the United Order and everything, and, and shows me all that they've done, and it's pretty impressive, actually. But I was thinking about it last night. They don't do what God has commanded them to do. And well, what do I mean by that? Part of the United Order is buying up the land in the surrounding community and growing the order um, by buying up the land when their neighbors move out and all of that. But they don't do that. They have like this compound with, with you know, food storage and like water and, and homes and everything. And like, I, I don't know, it's just, it's not... It's better than what other people are doing. The other people, like with the exception of maybe the righteous branch of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, the other, well, I guess the FLDS do it too. They have United Orders, but they, they're small. At least the righteous branch of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, which is based out of Tonopah, Nevada, at least they try, kind of, 
to live United Orders, but for the most part, they don't. And I don't know if it's because they, their leaders don't want to give up their wealth and enter into United Order and have consecration, or, or what it is, I don't know, but it seems like it's hard to find a people who will actually be obedient to the law of consecration and to the United Orders that God has instructed us as a people to be part of. Anyway, this is a teaching ministry, and uh, I'm just uh, talking about things that I've observed, and maybe I'm wrong about that, but let's get back into this quote, and we'll actually start it over. Lord would be glad to see the people practice out of doors what they hypocritically profess before him indoors. They say they are the Lord's, and when their children are taken sick and their wives, fathers, mothers, or husbands are taken sick, oh, how humble then they are. And they will send for elders to pray for them and acknowledge that all is the Lord's and say, we give ourselves and all we have to thee. The Lord makes them well by his power through the ordinances of his house. But will they, will they consecrate? No. They said, it is mine and I will have it myself. There is their treasure and their heart's heart is with it. And what will be the end thereof? That which they seem to have will be given to those who are faithful and they will receive nothing at all. Journal of Discourses, Volume 2, page 306. How sad that the Mormon people have never realized the great potential strength of their position. The Gentiles understood it, understood more about the power of the economic, social, and political structure of Mormonism than the Mormons did. It is, clear, it is a clear illustration that the children of this world are wiser than the children of light. Luke chapter 16, verse 8. Men of great intellect have discerned the powerful sovereignty of Mormonism and view it as a threat to their own cunning and wicked system. Other, others understood it, its potential and considered it as great as a great achievement and had respect for it. The noted Count Leo Tolstoy also realized the strength of the Mormon position. He expressed his in-depth analysis of it to the president of Cornell University, Dr. Andrew D. White, on page 239 at 31%, who served as the United States Foreign Minister to Russia in 1892. During one of their discussions, the Count Leo Tolstoy said to him, the Mormon people teach the American religion. Their principle, principles teach not only a heaven and its attainment, attended glories, but how to live so that their social and economic relations with each other, each other are placed on a sound bias. If that people follow the teachings of this church, nothing can stop their progress. It will be limitless. There have been a great there have been great movements started in the past, but they have all died or been modified before they reached maturity. 
If Mormonism is able to endure unmodified until it reaches the third and fourth generations, it is destined to become the greatest power the world has ever known. Mormonism, Americanism, Politics by Richard Vetti, or Vetterelli, Vetterelli, I guess, page four. And a marvelous work in a wonder by by Richards, page 435 and 436. How disappointed Tolstoy would have been if he had known what was that while he was making that comment, the Mormon people were compromising their principles in social, economic, and political political areas. It was very evident that polygamy was not the only principle that bothered the Gentiles, even from their own public admissions. Orson Whitney stated that the Gentiles were often saying, we care nothing for your polygamy. It's a good war cry and service, serves our purpose by enlisting sympathies for our cause. But it is a Merzbagtel, I don't know what that means, compared with the other issue in the irrepressible conflict between our parties, parties. We're on page 240 at 36%. What we most object to is your unity, your political and commercial solidarity, the obedience you render to your spiritual leaders in your temporal affairs. We want you to throw off the yoke of the priesthood, to do as we do, and be Americans in deed as well as in name. And quote History of Utah by Orson F. Whitney, Volume 3, page 547. What does he mean by all this? Well, a lot of people know about the manifesto and like how they supposedly stopped polygamy, even though they didn't stop polygamy. There was a second manifesto that they had to issue, but even after that, there was still polygamy in the church all the way up until the 1950s and 60s. Because uh, people who were 20 at the time of the manifesto who were polygamists in the church... Well, you know, if they got married, say they were 25 years old, well, they still had the rest of their lives to live, and they didn't just give up their wives till 1890, they're 25, you know, all the way up until into the 1960s, they're still polygamists who are active polygamists, like they live the principle, you know, in the church, but many of them leave the church because of the oppression of polygamists and whatnot. But then there's other people like David O. McKay who had a wife and married his secretary in secret. You know, and then you've got spiritual polygamy like Dallin H. Oaks is sealed to his dead wife. You know, she passed away and he's sealed to another wife. You know, that's spiritual polygamy. Um, Russell M. Nelson, his his deceased wife, he sealed to her, and he's married now and sealed to Wendy, so he's a polygamist, even though he only has one wife at a time. Um, I'm sealed to two women. My ex-wife and I are still sealed together. Um actually kind of feel sorry for her. Um, 
because I, I do keep track. I never bother her. But I'm interested in how she's doing, you know, and I want her to... She just wanted to be a mother so bad. And actually, when we had our annulment, we were only married for four months. Um, one of the things that she told the judge was that I was sterile and I couldn't get her pregnant because we had tried, right? It's like so immature. She was in her 20s. I was in my 20s, you know, And it, but it was just stupid what happened between us. I was 29, I think. Yep, I was 29. Anyway, um, well, it turns out, like, I'm the father of nine children. Um, we, well, I consider the ones that my wife, Kimberly, um, miscarried. And also we did have one of those babies. So we have five living children, three miscarriages, and one baby that the birth was so bad. Like, uh, I don't even want to get into it, but our baby only lived 13 hours and then we were holding her as she died. But I'm the father of nine children. Five living children. And my ex-wife was angry because I couldn't get her pregnant. And then there was a bunch of other stuff, too, and I don't want to get into that. I just wasn't good enough for her. And, uh, you know, her family didn't like me. They were friendly to my face, which I find that a common occurrence among Mormons. They're friendly to the, to your face, and then they stab you in the back. I've seen that so many times among the, the LDS people. I don't, I don't even want to be friends with people in the LDS church because I've seen it so often. But anyway, that's how they were. But my ex-wife that I'm still filled to, she lives up in, in Utah County and she never got married again. She is in her 40s and she never had children. And it's sad. And I was warned before we got married, and I know I'm going off on tangents, but I'll just say this real quick and then get back to what we were talking about before. I was actually told in May of, of 2006, about a month before we got married, and I remember walking on the sidewalk with her when God spoke to me, and, and she's standing there too, and she doesn't hear any of this. It's just God speaking to me in my mind. And he gave me a warning about, what would happen with our relationship. Now, I thought one of us was going to die or something, and maybe we'd be reconnected in the resurrection, but I wasn't. I didn't have any idea what was going to happen between us. But God told me that she would only be in my life for a short time, and she would be absent for a very long time, and then she would be in my life again. Now, I don't know what exactly that means. I don't know whether she will come back in some polygamous reunion you know with my wife who is my my wife now and my ex-wife coming back I don't know what that's going to mean I don't know if she's going to be part of the gathering when we are gathered in the highways of the top of the mountains and in the desert places I don't know if that means that she'll be in my life in the resurrection as a friend I mean I still love her 
and I want what's best for her, but I don't, I don't know what God meant by what he meant, but I didn't, I didn't understand just what would happen. And like I said, we were married from June 27th, 2006 until October 7th, or 27th, 2006. So not very long. And we were sealed in the Bountiful Temple. I actually had a complete nervous breakdown out of everything that was happen- happening. So I was undiagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder. And she has Asperger's, which when I found out my son Emmett has Asperger's, I actually openly wept because of how hard it was with my ex-wife and her Asperger's, and then undiagnosed PTSD um, with some other issues that I had. She just, there was things that she did, which she didn't, I'm sure she didn't mean to do, but it, it just wasn't healthy. It wasn't mentally a healthy relationship. So, um, and that relationship actually scarred me to this day. I'm still scarred by that relationship. But um, for the next four years after that, I just was so angry. And it, it was just a bad time in my life. But but I'm sealed to her, and I'm sealed to my wife, Kimberly. So you have that kind of polygamy-type stuff going on in the church, but you don't have it openly, but the the Gentiles weren't so concerned about polygamy. I mean, they were able to beat their chests over that and to say, oh, the the horrible evils of Mormonism because of the polygamy. But what they really wanted to go after was United Orders and the Council of Fifty, which is the political portion of the kingdom of God. And they were able to do that in the 1890s when they they made the church give up a whole bunch of different things, not just polygamy. Anyway, continuing on, the Mormons had three basic fundamentals upon which to build their temples. Number one, their political kingdom of God, which is the Council of Fifty. Number two, their temple power in the United Order, which is the financial and economical system of the kingdom of God. And number three, the population growth through polygamy. What happened to these three? The most influential of all the anti-Mormon bills was the Edmonds Act passed in 1882, which in essence removed the government of Utah from the hands of the Mormons and placed it in the hands of a commission appointed by the national president. It was quickly followed in 1887 by the Edmonds-Tucker Act, in which Congress provided for the confiscation of the properties of the Mormon Church. Eventually, church leaders found it necessary to give up the unequal struggle in an attempt to bring their ideal ideas and practices more into conformity with the prevailing sentiment of the, fe- of the federal Congress. National leaders and church leaders are said to have entered into a compact. We do not know whether such a compact was actually made, but it, but at least the arrangements and actions which it is said to have involved did take place. In the supposed compact, national leaders are said to have 
promised statehood for Utah, provided three things were done. Now, on page 241, at 41%. Number one, plural marriage was abandoned, which is the social system of the kingdom of God upon the earth and in heaven, by the way. Number two, the church's political party was dissolved. That is the the uh, Council of Fifty, which is the political portion of the kingdom, kingdom of God. And number three, the church dissolved its relations with the economy, which is the United Order. And they had they did away with all of those things. You can't find United Orders after that. They just did away with them. Plural marriage, of course, was abandoned with the manifesto in 1890, but it really wasn't abandoned, if you know anything about the history. Also, there's the 1880s revelations, and there's multiple ones, where Jesus tells them not to give up the principle of plural celestial marriage or to compromise with the Gentiles. John Taylor was obedient to to that, but um, Wilfred Woodruff was not. He gave in, and Charles Penrose, who was his counselor, is actually the one who admitted to writing the manifesto. It was no revelation. Now, when a church receives revelation, they're supposed to present the revelation to a church in general conference. Well, during the 1880s, when the underground was happening, where the Mormon leaders were in hiding because the federal government was trying to find them to throw them in prison, like what happened at Orson F. Whitney, um, they weren't able to present these revelations that they had received to the church for vote by common consent for addition uh, and canonization into the Doctrine and Covenants. And then after the Manifesto, they just basically ignored these things, even though John W. Taylor, the son of Joseph or of John Taylor, who was an apostle, they, they uh, excommunicated him because he was like, no, I'm not going to live, I'm not going to give up the, the law of plural celestial marriage because my dad got a revelation wherein he spoke to Jesus face to face and Joseph Smith and he was commanded not to give in to, or compromise with the Gentiles on these things. And he was obedient to that, but they weren't able to canonize these revelations, although the uh, the copies of the Doctrine and Covenants during that time period over in England actually added um, one, at least one or two of these revelations and I actually know a man, well, I don't know him. I've met him uh, several times, but there's a man that I have met at meetings at the Righteous Branch of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, which has a branch in Spanish Fork, Utah, run by Benjamin Schaefer. And this man that attended some of these meetings actually bring his old copy of the Doctrine and Covenants and showed me personally how the Doctrine and Covenants had these, well, one or, I can't remember, it was, it was quite a number of years ago, but it had one or two of these revelations from the 1880s that was in it. But the the copies that were printed in the United States did not have have them. Of course, the ones over in England, uh, they only printed them in the in that for a short time. Now it's kind of funny because Benjamin Schaefer actually has all of these revelations in a booklet that, um, along with other things that the church has decided to remove, 
um, actually glued into his personal copy of the scriptures in in the uh, just in the the binding or whatever the the cover. I guess it's just glued in there. <laughs> so it's part of his scriptures, but but the LDS Church doesn't acknowledge them anymore, even though they know about them. John W. Taylor presented it to uh, to the council when they were they were excommunicating him for continuing to live plural celestial marriage. And he said, is this my dad's handwriting? And they were like, yes. And they're all like, where did you get this revelation from? Because some of them didn't know. Because like Heber J. Grant and there were others that um, were brought into the church after the death of, of the senior apostles and the president of the church. And... There, there, you know, John Taylor wrote down these revelations that God gave him to write down. Thus saith Lord revelations. And actually, I was thinking about it yesterday. I might just, when we're done with United Order, um, I might just go ahead and read Revelations 1880 to 1890, which talk about these revelations that the church wants to ignore or reject uh, because it doesn't go along with the narrative whatever, but um, I think that might be the next book that I read. Although you can go ahead and read that for yourself without me reading it to you at ogdenkraut.com. Just go down, uh, scroll down, alphabetical order, all of the list of his books, read Ogden's books on his main page. Anyway, you click on that link and then you, you scroll down and you'll see Revelations 1880 to 1890 and that talks about those revelations that I'm t- telling you about now, which you may not know about, or maybe you do, but you don't know much about them, you can find out all about them and everything that has to do with them because Ogden Kraut compiled a bunch of stuff and and made it into a a readable book, which is a pretty dang good book. Anyway, continuing on, plural marriage, of course, was abandoned with the Manifesto of 1890, the People's Party was dissolved in 1891, and the people were divided divided between Republicans and Democrats, and the church began to take steps to withdraw from many of its economic activities. End quote. Religion and Economies in Mormon History by L.J. Arrington, BYU Studies, Volume 3, page 31 and 32. This compact had a disastrous effect upon the basic structure of Mormonism. By the turn of the century, the Mormons had abandoned their economic, or united orders, their political kingdom of God, which is the Council of Fifty and all that entails, and their social doctrines, which is plural celestial marriage. We not only willingly shook hands with our enemies, but we joined their ranks. This condition was noted by Mormon and non-Mormons alike. Keith E. Norman, a non-Mormon, clearly portrayed this ecclesiastical rupture of church dogma when he said, although the manifesto was undoubtedly perceived by most Mormons as a tactical and temporary expedition rather than a defeat, it is a signal it is significant that Wilfred Woodruff explained his inspiration in terms of the disaster that faced the church rather than the promise of redemption just around the corner. Yet this latest, this latest delay of 
prosoia, or the second coming, was perhaps the most profound for all of Mormonism. Because it's marks, it marks the beginning of an about-face which drastically altered the character of the church. We're on page 242 at 47%. Let me just say... Um, the church continued to perform plural celestial marriages all the way up until the Second Manifesto. And then during that time, they actually sent different groups out into Mexico, Canada, and other places in the Utah Territory and in the United States to continue on with plural celestial marriage and keep the principle alive, um, kind of distancing themselves from from it as far as the church goes to protect the, the church, you know, from the political interference with uh, with the U.S. government. These, this is where the Mormon fundamentalists come from. They were told that uh, they were to continue the principle, which was which is plural celestial marriage, and that when they were able to legalize uh, uh, or fight to get this, these things legalized as part of the freedom of religion that was supposed to be guaranteed in the Constitution, that the fundamentalists who continued on with these doctrines would be invited back into the church. So many of these families were like full-fledged Mormons being obedient to what the leadership of the church told them, and then over time they were disannulled and uh, become they become like branded as apostates and uh, and ostracized from the membership and the leadership of the LDS church and many of these fundamentalist groups believe that one day and they still some of them still do believe that they will be accepted back in as faithful Mormons and they won't be called apostates anymore, but the LDS Church doesn't care anything. It basically, the LDS Church caused fundamentalist churches to exist and gave them the promise that they would be welcomed back into the church when everything was taken care of, and then when things weren't taken care of, they were just ostracized and... Um, and bullied by the LDS Church. And I won't get into all that the LDS Church has personally done to attack the rights of fundamentalists, but it's sickening. When you know the history of it, it is disgusting what the LDS Church has done and what they're continuing to do. Anyway, but that's not what this program is about today, so I won't get into it too much, but it's sad. It's a sad commentary on our history about the things that have happened to the fundamentalist people. Now, I am a fundamentalist, but I am kind of a strange fundamentalist um, because not everything that the church teaches or has taught in the past, I believe. I don't believe that the one-man doctrine of Brigham Young is the way that uh, it's meant to be, uh, and I don't believe that the church continued on in complete acceptance by God because Je or Jesus Christ told Joseph Smith that he would reject the church if they weren't obedient to his commandments. 
now he was talking about the temple in Nauvoo and the building of the temple with the father coming and restoring the fullness of the priesthood. But that in principle is that Jesus said, if you don't do what I say, I'm going to reject the church with your dad. And the church continues to change things and to get rid of parts of the ordinances and, and the gospel, which has changed over the years. And yes, it has changed. Um, and the, the endowments have changed. Um, a bunch of things have changed. And we as a people are not obedient to all that God has commanded. And we make excuses because our leaders walk away from these things. That, oh, that was for those people back then. We don't have to worry about it today. But Jesus said, if you don't do what I say, you'll be rejected as a church with your dead. And the principle is that if you don't do what he says, you'll be rejected as a church with your dead. Now, Joseph Smith is a true prophet. The Book of Mormon is true. And things that are taught within the church, there are there is a lot of truth there. And the testimony of the Holy Spirit will testify to the truth of all things, no matter who says it. So just because you feel the Spirit in the church from time to time doesn't mean that... that they're accepted, and it doesn't mean that things haven't changed. It just means that the Holy Spirit testifies of truth. The Holy Spirit testifies of truth in the evangelical churches, in the Protestant churches, in the Catholic churches, when truth is being taught. So people feel the Spirit from the teachings of a particular church, and then they think, oh, we're being led right, when there are many things within all the churches in the world that are the doctrines of men mingled with scripture. And even second Thess or no second um Nephi chapter twenty eight, I think it says, it talks about like the whole world being in gross darkness and error, nevertheless the few who are you know, who are God's people, but never and it says nevertheless, they oftentimes are taught by the precepts of men. So there is nobody in the whole world according to the scriptures in the last days, that is actually obedient to God's commandments, that doesn't have the corruption of men mingling their opinions with scripture and then calling that doctrine. Anyway, continuing on. Briefly stated, the church abandoned its adversarial role in the American culture and entered the mainstream. Within a few years of 1890, not only polygamy, but the theocracy and the com, com, communitarianism, the three most distinct practices of the 19th century Mormonism, were regulate, reg, relegated to the historic past and the idolization or idolized future in Mormon thought. It is difficult for modern members of the church to comprehend the enormity of these changes. As Hansen points out, Mormonism has experienced a social and intellectual transformation of such magnitude that a resurrected Joseph Smith returning to earth today might well wonder if this was indeed the same church that he founded. Once the vanguard of the radical alternate sexual lifestyle offense 
offensive to moral sensibilities of virtually every decent American, Mormonism has become the foremost bastion in begorious monogamy, once enthusiastically experimenting in the creation of a divinely, and these are two big words for me, but egalitarian economy. I don't know what that means. The church has since embraced the capitalistic ethic to the point of rounding its large financial empire firmly upon the gray flannel rock of Adam Smith. As early as 1922, E.E. E. Erickson noted the philosophy of the church leaders was at one time radical and socialistic. It is now conservative and capitalistic. And quote, how long, O oh Lord, the delay in the Perusia in Mormonism, and I guess Perusia means the second coming. Anyway, that was a paper by Keith E. Norman, which was written July of 1982. In the dilemma of threatening war upon the saints, they raised the white flag before a shot had been fired, with half a dozen promises from the Lord that he would fight their battles They chose not to experiment upon his word, but rather chose to serve God and mammon at the same time. We're on page 243 at 53%. This war was not only a temporal battle, it was also a spiritual one. Dr. Hugh Nibley, like a voice in the wilderness, poignantly explains that, quote, it is not difficult to discover the plot of the, of the drama of the restored gospel. But the prince of this world does not like certain aspects of the play, and so his people have undertaken to rewrite the script. What has happened in our... It, what has happened is an old story and is crassly ob, ob, obvious. They have switched villains on us. They have cast an obnoxious young lightweight a very minor devil, to the role of the evil one, while the one most qualified to play it prefers to take the part of a dignified, upright, mature, and often charming gentleman. And that was Hugh Nibley, uh, quote from his book, What is Zion? A Distant View, page 19. The abandonment of the United Order became the loss of a great temporal blessing to the saints. But more than that, it was a great spiritual loss. The Lord said, quote, Nevertheless, in your temporal things you shall be equal, and this not grudgingly, otherwise the abundance of the manifestations of the Spirit shall be withheld. Doctrine and Covenants, section 70, verse 14. The lack of spiritual gifts is very evident in the church today. In the early days of the church, while they were living the United Order, they had many wonderful spiritual manifestations. When the order broke up in Kirtland and in Missouri, the saints had one of the most difficult times of apostasy in its history. Page 244 at 57%. Today, throughout all the teachings and in the numberless oceans of books that the saints are publishing, Probably not one in a hundred mention or advocate the United Order. What has been the result of their rejection of the doctrine of the United Order? 
Number one, spiritual gifts have ceased. Number two, written revelation has ceased. Number three, persecution has ceased and friendship with the world was substituted. And remember what Timothy said, or Paul said to Timothy, to be friends with the world is to be at opposition or in enmity with God. You cannot serve God and mammon. Number four, temporal prosperity is sought more than the spiritual. Number five, the saints cease to be united. They are scattered all over the world, which is not the way it should be because there was a, a command to gather, but they don't do that anymore, and they make excuses as to why they don't. Anyway, number four, worldly standards, immorality, and sin have become commonplace among our youth, and not only our youth, but the single adults of the church. There's huge problems with uh, the law, with chastity in, in the LDS church. Of course, there's also a huge problem with something called soaking, which is where a man who is not married to a woman, and this is a problem at BYU, big problem, where the man who is supposedly a faithful member of the LDS church will stick his penis into a female, and then they won't move, you know, so they're not actually having sex, they're just kind of having sex. It's disgusting. They call it soaking, and it's a problem uh, among our youth, our young adults at BYU. Anyway, uh, continuing, seven, teaching of, teaching of the leaders are clashing with those of former prophets of God because they think that the leader today is more important than the leader yesterday, and if the leader today contradicts the, the former leader, then the leader today is the one that should be followed. When doctrine is eternal and when doctrine is taught, it doesn't change. That's not how God is. But um, but they make excuses, which is a, a big thing for the LDS church. They make excuses. And most of the people in the LDS church don't even know that they're being taught different from from teachings of the past because of the correlation committee and the churches uh, trying to get rid of things. And they destroy books. Yes, they do. They destroy books. Um and they try to get rid of things and uh, and say, oh, we never taught that, or they were just opinions or whatever. But but a lot of things, like the Adam-God doctrine, were not taught as opinions. They were taught as doctrine. And it was even uh, introduced by Joseph Smith, but the LDS church will say, well, that was just Brigham Young and his opinions, and it wasn't. You could actually be excommunicated for not believing in the doctrine of the Adam-God doctrine, which they now say is a theory or whatever, but it's not. Anyway, continuing on. And if you want to know more about that, read Michael Adam. Ogden Crow, uh, compiled a book with a ton of quotes and a bunch of stuff uh, that talk about that. But even The Gathering of Israel, you can read that. Ogden Kraut did a really good job on that. Ogden Kraut was actually set apart to preserve, uh, preserve doctrine. That was his job, and he did it by writing... I don't know, it was like between 70 to 90 books and pamphlets on these doctrines. Anyway, continuing on. The sermons lack the Holy Spirit and must be read, because, you know, you teleprompters. <laughs> um, number nine, the laws of man are sustained in preference to the laws of God. So 
So are you going to serve God or are you going to serve mammon? Number 10, what little of the spirit of God is left, left whispers to every saint that something is surely out of order. When the church sacrificed the principles of their temporal equality for the Gentile system of inequality, they established new goals. They wanted riches for the prestige and honors of the world that accompanied them. Jay Golden Kimball noticed this when he said, quote, if I had a million dollars, I'd be the most sought after, a sought after man in the church, but I haven't got it, damn it. And quote, the Golden Legacy, page 92. Yet he was wise enough to see the dangers of such a course, and he warned the saints, quote, don't set your heart upon riches. Don't speculate and don't go into debt. And that is from the Golden Legacy, page 90, and we're on page 245 at 63%. When men depart from the principles of the gospel, they begin to lose the spirit of it, and they lose the thrill and the joy of it, too. They become dissatisfied, discontent, and discouraged with what little spirituality remains. Orson Pratt asked this question, which is probably more applicable to members of the church today than it was when he wrote it. Quote, Do you enjoy a great measure of the Spirit of God as when you were first baptized into this kingdom? Or are, you, are your minds burned, your understandings unfruitful, your soul in darkness, and your feelings cold and indifferent towards the great work which you have embraced which once made you joyful and happy. If this be your condition, it is of the utmost importance that you know the causes of these unhappy changes in your feelings. Is it because the Lord has changed and forgotten to be gracious? Is it because the fullness of the gospel does not produce the same effect or happiness now as it did in ancient times? And quote the seer by Orson Pratt, pages two and three. And real quick, before I continue to go on, in Matthew chapter 24, it talks about the eagles being gathered to the carcass. And a lot of people are like, well, what does that mean? The eagles are the elect of God and the carcass is the dead church. A lot of people want to say that the church is the living church and we have living prophets and apostles today, but the fruits of the living church are continuous revelation and manifestations in all of the aspects of the Holy Spirit which are not found in the LDS church today. It is a dead church. Jesus Christ said if they did not if they weren't obedient to what he asked them to do that he would reject the church, which he did in part. And Jesus talks about this in Matthew chapter 24, where in the last days the eagles would be gathered to the carcass. Now, what does that mean? The eagles are the elect of God, and they are, they are gathered to the carcass of the dead church, and they're trying to feast upon the, the meat of the doctrine, but the, the church is not living anymore. They don't have, thus saith the Lord, revelations. They do not have dreams and visions, and they have to make up a bunch of stuff to, to get people to continue to follow on, believing that it is a true and living church when, in fact, the fruit of it is that it is a dead church. Anyway, continuing on, 
And I'm sorry if that offends people, but it's the truth. All right, let's see here. It is clearly evident to anyone in or out of the church that Mormonism does not have the power, the spirit, and the blessings that God once gave it. There is so much to be gained in obeying the laws of God and so little reward for practicing the ways of the world. Yet, United Order has been one of the most difficult of all the laws given to this people. Brigham Young stated, and we're on page 246 at 68%, it was one of the first commandments or revelations given to this people after they had the privilege of organizing themselves as a church. As a body, as the kingdom of God on the earth, I observed then, and I now think, that it will be one of the last revelations which the people will receive into their hearts and understanding of their own free will and choice and esteem it a pleasure, a privilege, and a blessing unto them to observe and keep most holy. And quote, Journal of Discourses, Volume 2, page 299. John Taylor added, quote, But the time will come when we will obey these things, speaking of the United Order, as they are given by the revelations of God, and it will not be a hardship either. It will be a pleasure to those who are under the influence of the Lord. Journal of Discourses, Volume 22, page 11. It is a frightful and sobering thought to realize that all of the hosts of heaven are looking upon the frailties and imperfections of this people, They look with eager anticipation for the saints to obey the laws of God. Brigham Young stated, quote, Why if they, the dead, had the power, the very thunders of heaven would be in our ears. If we could could but realize the importance of the work we are engaged in, all the angels in heaven are looking at this little handful of people and stimulated them to the salvation of the human family. So also are the devils in hell looking at this people too and trying to overthrow us and the people are still shaking hands with the servants of the devil instead of sanctifying themselves and calling upon the Lord and doing the work which he has commanded us and put into our hands to do. And we're on page 247 at 74%. Continuing on with the the quote, When I think upon this subject, I want the tongues of seven thunders to wake up the people. And quote John Taylor, Journal of Discourses, volume 18, page 304. This people have become so glued to Babylon, one wonders when they will ever become free of that influence or what it will take to tear them away from it. Heber Benyon, who is a bishop of the church, a long time ago, reasoned that, quote, we came willingly to the mountains of Ephraim to dwell just because we had to, and we will go into the United Order willingly just because we have to, and quote in his book, Gospel Problems by uh, Heber Benyon, page 26. Brigham also understood that this would be the condition for establishing the United Order among this people. He said, do you not see that we are coming to where the Lord will make us consecrate? 
end quote, Deseret News, October 18, 1857. We should realize that if we do not go into a the United Order willingly, then we must learn obedience by the things which we suffer. John Taylor prophesied that it would be so. Quote, at the General Conference held in Salt Lake City, April 1884, President John Taylor said, the time will come when we will not have to preach the United Order for the people will pray to get into it. And that was recorded by the uh, by Oliver B. Huntington Journal, page 23, or on page 248 at 79%. Although some have presumed that all is well in Zion and that nothing in the late least is out of order, it was not the opinion of Joseph Smith, Brigham Young, and many others even in their day. Brigham Young once said, quote, I sometimes think that I would be willing to give anything to do almost anything in reason to see one fully organized branch of this kingdom, one fully organized ward. Is there even, is there even in this territory a fully organized ward? Not one. It may be asked, why do you, why do you not fully organize the church? Because the people are incapable of being organized. I could organize a large ward who would be subject to a full organization by selecting families from different wards, but at the present time, such a branch of the church is not in existence. Journal of Discourses, Volume 10, page 20. And again, he said, quote, this is Brigham Young, I have had visions and revelations instructing me how to organize this people so that they can live like the family of heaven. But I cannot do it while so much selfishness and wickedness reign in the elders of Israel. There are many great and glorious privileges for the people which they are not prepared to receive. How long it will be before they are prepared to enjoy the blessings God has in store for them. I know not. It has not been revealed to me. I know the Lord wants to pour blessings upon this people, but were he to do so in their present ignorance, they they would not know what to do with them. Page 249 at 84%. They can only receive, they can receive only a very little, and that must be administered to them with great care. Journal of Discourses, Volume 9, page 269. It certainly should be easy to see the folly folly of the course we have taken and the foolishness of the world's course. Problems are going at an avalanche rate. Speaking of only the temporal mess, George Q. Cannon said, quote, All these problems of capital and labor can be solved by this principle united order, and in no other way. There will be an instant, a never-ending conflict between capital and labor until they are solved in this manner. Journal of Discourses, Volume 17, page 244. If the saints would have continued with the principle of the united order, they would not be experiencing so much unemployment and poverty now. 
Brigham Young said that men would have to work for only half a day and the other half would be devoted to education, recreation, visiting, travel, missionary work, etc., like if they lived the United Order. There would be no worry about enough food, high medical bills, or insufficient finances. The vast sums of money that we waste on lawyers, advertising, banking, brokers, salesmen, unions, management, etc., would be distributed to make these people millionaires. Today we have broke and broken men. Welfare, handouts, overflowing prisons, numerous mental institutions, sluts, a plague of diseases and criminals. When we bartered away the Lord's programs, we inherited all of the Gentiles' blessings. Page 258, 88%. These conditions were seen by many of the ancient prophets, and they warned us of them. The ancient prophet Mormon spoke directly to the Latter-day Saints by saying, I speak unto you as if, it were, as if you were present, and that Jesus Christ has shown me you unto me, and I know you're doing. What he had to say about us was lacking in praise or compliments over what we have achieved. He stated, quote, And I know that you do walk in the pride of your hearts, and there are, no, there are none save only a few who do not lift themselves up in the pride of their hearts unto the wearing of very fine apparel, unto the envying, strife, and malice, and persecutions, and all manner of iniquities, and your churches, yea, ev even every one, have become polluted because of the pride of your hearts. Now remember, this is a love letter to the, restora the restoration and the saints in the latter days. He's speaking directly to the church as a whole, and not as every ward and every branch of all of the churches of the restoration, every single one of them. For behold, ye do love money in your substance, in your fine apparel, and the adornment of your churches, more than ye love the poor and the needy, the sick and the afflicted. O ye pollutions, ye hypocrites. Who's he saying are hypocrites? The, the, the leaders of the restoration and the members thereof as well. Ye teachers who sell yourselves for that which will canker, why have you polluted the holy church of God? Why are you ashamed to take upon you the name of Christ? And quote Mormon chapter 8, verse 36 through 38. The Mormon concluded by saying that all of our business ventures will get, uh, to get gain are nothing more than secret abominations that are only going to bring vengeance upon our heads. The prophet Joseph Smith also made a solemn warning that except the church received the fullness of the scriptures, that they would yet fail. Teachings of the prophet Joseph Smith, page 9. We're on page 251 at 93%. Receiving the fullness of the scriptures means more than merely believing them. This was another way of saying that we cannot serve God and mammon, which is talked about in Matthew chapter 7, verse 24. Two roads have been placed before the Latter-day Saints. One is, a one is direct to great blessing, 
blessings in this life and in the eternal worlds to come, the other road leads to sorrow, regret, and cursing. See Doctrine and Covenants section 104 verse 3 and also Doctrine and Covenants section 84 verses 58 through 59. The United Order is one of the everlasting laws and covenants that leads to temporal and spiritual blessings. We have excused ourselves from obeying it and chose another divergent path to follow instead of becoming like Jacob, who treasured his inheritance. We have become like Esau and traded it for a mess of pottage. So that's the end of that chapter, chapter 16. Uh, The next chapter that we come to in the United Order, we'll start on page 252, and I'll probably uh, put that out on Monday at 6 a.m. in the morning. Uh, but a little preview is uh, we'll read A House in Order. Uh, while I'm reading this, I am opening the chat room and the phone lines for anybody who has any questions or comments. Um, But if nobody calls in, uh, then we'll just go straight to the end of the program. The guest call-in number is 917-889-8827. That's 917-889-8827. If you do call in, please press 1. And uh, while I'm giving the, uh, you know, we're we're doing a pre-recorded thing, so I'll be listening on the line. Um, I'll bring you into the call screening room, and then you can ask your question or comment off air. And uh, if you choose to come on the air, then then I will bring you into onto the show. Uh, but if not, I'll just answer your question um, on air live for everybody to hear. But uh, I won't bring you in onto the the show live. But anyway, so you can call. Nine one seven eight eight nine eight eight two seven, and also there is a chat room available, which is open at blogtalkradio.com forward slash fundamentally Mormon. So the preview for chapter seventeen, starting on page two hundred and fifty-two, a house in order. Quote: The Almighty is a lover, lover of order and good government. Teachings of the Prophet Joseph Smith, page one hundred and eighty-seven. The house of Jacob, called Israel, came out of order when eleven sons of Jacob refused to acknowledge Joseph as the rightful heir to rule as their leader. The descendants of Joseph have had a difficult time to remain or regain their rightful place as rulers ever since. Jesus came through the lineage of Jacob and was told to reign over the house of Jacob forever. Luke chapter 1 verse 33. Jesus understood the problems and conflicts in Jacob's house and said, If a house be divided against itself, that house cannot stand. Mark chapter 3, verse 25. Also, there was the influence of the filthy lucre, which he denounced by saying, My house shall be called of all nations the house of prayer, but ye have made it a den of thieves. Mark chapter 11, verse 17. Indicating that the house of Jacob was still out of order during his ministry. This was certainly evident when the Jews rejected Christ and his right to rule. But the prophecies of apostasy 
were not without the promise of a setting in order. So, and we also know that um, Jesus Christ said that he would have to send one mighty and strong to set the house of God in order, which implies that it would be out of order when that prophet who was mighty and strong would come to set it in order. You can find that in Doctrine and Covenants section 85, but also in Isaiah chapter 28, it talks about the one mighty and strong coming among the drunkards of Ephraim to teach they who are weaned from the milk and drawn from the breast, people who are ready for the meat of the gospel. Isaiah chapter 28 is where Isaiah sees the drunkards of Ephraim who are drunk on the spirit of Babylon the great in the last days. That's the saints. And they are the drunkards of Ephraim. And they are drunk on the spirit of Babylon the Great. And they have compromised. And they are out of order. And it's time to be set in order. Which is done through the teachings of the prophet who is one mighty and strong. Spoken of in Doctrine and Covenants section 85. (laughs) 